So I know I'm known for giving a lot of movie quotes, some appropriate, some not so appropriate, depending on your perspective. But uh, one is from The Usual Suspects, and this is uh, said by the character Verbal Kent. He says, this is a classic quote, the greatest trick the devil, the, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. So the devil's greatest trick is telling people, yeah, I don't exist, just, I don't, I'm not here. And this is something from uh, theologian Fulton J. Sheen. This is what he said about the devil. Uh, he's, he said, very few people believe in the devil these days, which suits the devil very well. People, uh, uh, he always is helping to circulate the news of his own death. The essence of God is existence. He defines himself as I am who I am. The essence of the devil is the lie, and he defines himself as, I am who I am not. Satan has very little trouble with those who do not believe in him. A lot of truth to these quotes. According to the New York Times article, it says, is Satan is real? Most people don't think so. Don't believe the devil. Well, 95% of Americans say they believe in God, angels, and heaven. Most Americans are pretty skeptical as to whether Satan even exists. I've met people like this before. According to polls done by Barna Research, 62% of Americans said they believe the devil is just a symbol of evil and not actually a living being. 8% of Americans had no opinion on Satan, and only 30% of Americans said they believe that Satan exists. And some people will say, yeah, he's just a principle or force. It's like, well, no, he's, he can be bound, he can be deceived. So it's pretty hard to read that in, but people have this disposition not to believe in Satan. Uh, churches avoid talking about Satan and demons. They don't want to come off as too superstitious or weird and get into spiritual stuff, so they avoid Satan. Now, the other extreme and I think we've heard this extreme, is they attribute, people attribute everything to Satan. I mean, literally everything. So that, you know, if you're waking up in the morning and, you know, the hot pocket burned your tongue and you're not feeling good, it's like, well, I'm be under spiritual warfare. It's like, no, that's just what hot pockets do. Okay, they ruin your morning. It's not, there's no meaning to it. People say, oh, the devil made me do it. Every time I sin, the devil made me do it. Uh, and then, of course, I've, I've, I've had people bring up this one. I, this is a really funny one. But, like, you have, like, the church lady on SNL have, like, Santa on the board, and she switches the letters around to say Satan, you know, kind of thing. So people find the, the devil and demons, but behind everything. I remember being at a study once when I was in my 20s, and the youth pastor was preaching through Romans, and there was like a dog barking in the distance, like a far off dog, you know, and the, the uh, pastor stops the study. He's like, right now, you hear that they're distracting our study. We're under spiritual attack. I was like, no, this is a dog barking far away. It's not even distracting the study, dude. I mean, come on. So you have people who just everything is Satan. Every, there's a demon lurking behind every corner. And you have people who are like, Hyper cessation is, oh, there's no demons anywhere. And I like the way C.S. Lewis kind of puts out this idea that there's just people going these two opposite extremes rather than being in the middle. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel excessively and healthy interest in them, to be excessive about them. 
And so, yeah, people, I, I have seen people who have such a excessive focus on Satan. They think that, you know, Satan is in control of the whole world, almost as if he were God. I've seen Christians draw pictures of, of Jesus and Satan playing chess like they're equal competitors. Let me tell you, the Lord Jesus is not an equal competitor with Satan. Jesus and Satan are not even on the same level. But that's how I've seen pictures, like they're just, they have equal power and they're trying to compete for souls. And God's kind of, Jesus is this impotent figure just trying to barely make it. And no, what we're going to see from the Apostle Paul in our verse-by-verse study is that Jesus and Satan, not on the same level. In fact, Jesus and his church will storm the gates of hell. They will dominate the kingdom of darkness. It's not like a 50-50 thing here. And so this comes to us, this, this theology of Satan in the closing chapter of the book of Romans in the larger context of Paul giving farewell greetings and seeing the connectiveness of the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, this is a beautiful thing because this gives us a picture into the early church and how it functioned, what it looked like. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful historical picture of the community they had, and we want to emulate that community as well. So Romans 16.1, it says... I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Concrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may uh, need from you, for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. And so Phoebe would have delivered the letter of, uh, from Paul to the Romans here. She would be the, the carrier of it. Many scholars think that. And what you're going to see here as we go through this list is that women have a very active role in the early church. Paul was not, you know, some just woman-hating man. People paint Paul to just hate women. But he, he is so involved with women in terms of uh, them being sisters, them supporting him in his ministry, and them being a part of his ministry. So it wasn't like Paul said, okay, yeah, women can't do anything. No, Paul is, believes that women have a very active role in the church. Some people have, uh, have thought that Paul just doesn't like women. In this time period, by the way, women w- couldn't do anything, hardly. I mean, they were, they were very marginalized. And here we see Paul give women significant role and purpose in the Christian church. He says in verse 3, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but to all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. You're going to notice also that the early church is diverse in Jew and Gentile, uh, and, and they all come together despite their racial distinctions. There's unity in Christ. So different genders, different backgrounds, all coming together. Many of the names are Greek. Some of them are Hebrew. Or Jewish. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved um, Epiranius, who was the first to convert to Christ in Asia. Meet, greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Androcidus and Junia, my kingsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me, a, a husband and wife couple here. And Plotus, my beloved in the Lord, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my Beloved Stachus, greet Apelles, who approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Artembolus, probably an aristocrat kind of family. This is a, a family that uh, had high prominence. So you have high class, low class people coming together here in the church of Jesus Christ because they're bond in Christ. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. 
and greet those who work in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. They're probably sisters. They're play on their names. They're twin sisters, many scholars think. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also the mother, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, what's really interesting about Rufus is he was Simon of Cyrene's son. And that Simon of Cyrene is the one who carried the cross of Jesus. The Roman soldiers forced him to carry the cross. So this, this guy has a place in the early church because his father helped Jesus carry his cross. Rufus, we get that in Mark's gospel. Greet and Secretus and Philagion and Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. So a lot of names are tongue twisters there, aren't they? <laughs> Not normal names today. Usually people name their kids in the Bible, they usually go to the, the Hebrew part of it to get it in these Greek names, not so much. Greet Philigius and Julia, Nervous and his sister Olympias, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ, Christ greet you. So I want you to notice this. I mean, this is, a, this is a time, even though this is a different church, a different area, they're pretty tight-knit here. There, there is, there's a community here of Christ, and they're connected to a larger spiritual church. And this just supports the point that I've emphasized. Is that, is the Bible does not paint that there's, there's no such thing as a spiritual John Wayne. You know, a guy, you know, just myself, independent. I'm not connected to any other Christian. People think, oh, I, just, I never need to go to church. I never need to be connected to a body of Christ. This is not what's going on here. This is a very connected community. And so Christians need each other. We need to build each other up in community. And to say that somebody is, is a Christian without a community is like saying, yeah, I'm a mother but, or a father and I have no children, nor, I, nor do I have no connection with any children at all. It doesn't make any sense. Part of being a Christian is part of being a broader spiritual family. Now it mentions here a spiritual kiss, and please don't try to kiss me after the service. I'm not, you know, I, I sometimes do knuckles. You know, if I haven't seen you in a while, I'll give you a hug. But it, this is to say, give each other a warm family-like greeting because we're a part of the spiritual body of Christ. And just so you know, I, I fist pound my, my dad and my brother, you know, when, you know, we're watching a game and the other side's winning that we like, we, we do fist pound. So, you know, I do that with my family too. So if I do that to you, it's my, it's my familial way of expressing myself to you because we're a part of the family, the body of Christ. Romans 16, 17 through 20, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. Just they're, they're causing trouble. Get away from them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetite and smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. They're very much like pastors who try to milk their congregation for money with fancy purple suits, causing division here. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace brings us the gospel of Christ. Peace will soon, soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What's interesting here is he says here, yeah, that Christians will soon crush Satan. And uh, this is actually a reference to Genesis 3.15, which has Jesus crushing the head of a serpent, which is representation of Satan. We're going to see that in the book of Revelation. But... And, and all scholars are agreed that, that Paul is making kind of this veiled reference to Genesis 3.15. I'll read that here. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and her offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, referring to Christ, he's going to bruise the head of the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. This is about Jesus sacrificing himself for us. He, if you, if you, you know, heard us try to stomp on a snake, snake, you're going to get bit. And so Jesus was damaged by that. But here, what's really cool about this is that it just mentions the fact that the church of Jesus Christ, which is a body of Christ, the church is his body, that we don't have to go through spiritual harm to crush Satan because Jesus has already made that sacrifice for us. And so his church, his body will crush Satan. And, you know, what makes this statement really shocking and kind of like, whoa, this is crazy, is it says that he will soon, you, that the church will soon crush Satan. Notice that soon, you'll never guess what soon means in Greek. Soon. <laughs> There's no tricks. It means soon. It means really quickly, right? So that's the idea. And so this is not just some far out distant event, you know, beyond the horizon. No, this is, this is in their contemporary, you know, uh, in, in their context, really. It says, it says, says soon. And uh, what's, what's interesting is, you know, uh, that scholars debate about this a little bit what the soon means. Some would say that, okay, this, the soon here refers to the soon of false teachers, meaning that the false teachers that are bothering them will soon be kind of thrown out of the church or not bother them anymore. And that's what soonness means here. I like what Tim Keller says. It's kind of interesting take on this. He says, whenever a soul is one to Jesus Christ, that that is the church crushing Satan. Isn't that interesting? So we have here crushing Satan. And uh, I think this vindicates me a little bit. But I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I was doing the college group once. And I, uh, this we had a college group. And, and they've now transitioned to Ron's uh, small couples group. But uh, I had a prayer. And I just kind of just, I don't script my prayers. I'm kind of just, a, I just kind of just pray and say whatever I think or feel. And I happened to mention, and they were, they were snickering. The, the college group was snickering at me. I said, oh, Lord, you know, help us to crack Satan's skull. And they just started laughing because they never heard a pastor talk such in combative ways. If you know me, that's, I slip into that sometimes. So I said it in a prayer. I wasn't planning on doing it. And they were laughing. But, you know, I feel like this kind of justifies that prayer. I just want to tell you guys. And so it wasn't a mistake. It was intentional because of this verse. It says the church will still crush Satan under feet. You know, so there you go. Now, some say that this could refer to uh, the great persecution of the church where Nero was persecuting the church. He is kind of like an antichrist figure and that he would be conquered and defeated and messed up and everything. And then after Nero dies, really, the church expands with the temple being destroyed and everything in 70 AD. The church expands out very quickly. And so scholars have felt that that could be a reference to that, too. I, I like the kind of combining the Tim Keller view and that view. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but, you know, either way, the promise is there soon, the Satan will be crushed. Now, uh, this is, the, the Word of God is also promising here something broader. Many scholars think this. Uh, and if you think about it from this vantage point, it's talking to Christians in one of the most persecuted times ever in church history. And it's saying, in that persecuted, embattled state that the Christians were facing in Rome, it's saying, hey, you guys will soon crush Satan. Now, if God can make that promise to the church in a persecuted time in the first century when they're just about to face insane persecution from Nero, do you think God has that promise for the church today? 
Seems plausible. I think so. In fact, that's what most scholars think. Most scholars think that Paul is, is, is outlining a general principle here for the church and is specifically applying that general principle for the church of Rome. And so that the church is promised general victory over Satan, over the kingdom of darkness, and specifically, specifically the church of Rome. Now, there's many verses that support this idea that the church is going to overcome the kingdom of darkness. One of them is very popular, Matthew 16, 18, a verse that we've, many of us have heard, but it says, And I tell you, are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I think when many people read this, they kind of have this, this idea of, you know, that the church being kind of uh, attacked and, you know, just kind of mangled and the church is just barely hanging on and we're just, we're just being aggressively pursued and persecuted. We're barely hanging on. We're barely hanging on. And so we'll be able to survive. It's kind of the survival idea that people read into this. So, yeah, no matter what Satan throws at us, no matter how much he attacks us offensively, we're going to hang on. That's how this is interpreted in a lot of American churches. I've seen people understand it that way. But what people don't realize when they think and they read th this text in that way is that it's not a matter of Satan attacking us that is in Jesus' mind because in, in ancient culture, what was a gate? A gate, you know, you have a, you have a kingdom, you have a gate, you have like the main gate. If that gate falls... The kingdom falls. If you watch Braveheart, for instance, you know, or any war, like ancient war movie, whatever it is, ancient, whatever, you know, any, any old timesy war like movie, they use catapults, they use fire arrows, they'll use whatever they can to break through those walls because they know once those walls fall, or walls, once, once that, once that gate falls, once it, once it collapses, armies just come in and the whole kingdom's done. Right? So this is saying here that the last defensive measure of Satan and his kingdom is going to be stormed and cracked and obliterated. It's a different image, isn't it? It's the church doing the offensive. It's the church going on attack and storming and cracking the gates of hell. That's a different idea. That kingdom of darkness will not be able to stand. It'll be overwhelmed. It will be dominated. It'll be smashed. And that is, that is the prediction that Jesus gives of in the entire church history. Not, not a, a losing situation, but a winning situation. And so he says the kingdom of God is going to grow. Kingdom of God is the Christian church. It's believers being added on to the Christian church. When the kingdom grows, more believers. The kingdom grows and expands. And Jesus says that kingdom is going to surpass everything, including the kingdom of darkness. Matthew 13, 31, and following, 32, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds. It was very small in the first century. The kingdom of God was. It was very small. But when it has grown, it is larger than all. It's making a comparative statement here than all the garden plants and becomes a tree the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. So Jesus says the kingdom of God will grow larger, bigger than everything else, including the kingdom of darkness. After all, he just said in this very same gospel that the church is going to storm, annihilate, and smash the gates of hell. 
And so it's going to grow larger than everything else. And so during his earthly ministry even, Jesus predicts, or not predicts, that's the wrong word. He basically, I, to say it blankly, announces the defeat of Satan while Jesus is walking on earth. He says this. And pretty astounding. You know, you don't, I, I don't hear that preached on very often, but it's important to know that when Jesus was doing his ministry, Satan was getting a death blow. And this is what Jesus says about Satan after uh, his followers cast out demons. He says this in Luke 10, 17 through 18. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in our name. He's like, yeah, look at him. We're, we're casting out demons. We're, we're doing great. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is an expression, which means Satan is losing and his grasp. He is losing his place of authority. He's losing it. And uh, then you see during Jesus' earthly ministry, we see Jesus announce that Satan is bound. Did you know that? Satan is bound right now. That's just not my opinion, like, oh, here's my pontification. Satan is bound right now. No, no, no. Jesus says it. In Matthew 12, 26 to 29, that's what the word of God says. And if I cast out Satan, cast out, if, I, if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by then whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God, I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house? By the way, the strong man here, by all scholars, is referred to, that's his expression to Satan. So he's binding the strong man. Strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. He says, in order to cast out these demons, I got to bind that strong man first. Then indeed he may plunder his house, plundering Satan's house. He is bound, he's a strong man, he is bound. And so he says, if I cast out demons, then the strong man is bound, Satan. I, he is casting out demons, that's the whole context of this. He is casting out demons, therefore Satan is bound. And so, yeah, this is, this is again, not just his earthly ministry where we see this massive death blow to Satan, but we see it by his death on the cross, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it says, And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, God made alive together with him, having forgiven some of our trespasses, all of our trespasses, all of our sins, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He did the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. All scholars grant the authorities and rulers here are spiritual, referring to demons and Satan and his kingdom. Christ triumphed over them by his death on the cross, taking away any accusation of the enemy by forgiving us of all of our sins. John 12, 31 through 32 uh, shows this in, a, in clearer terms, I would say. It makes, it makes Satan more explicit here, I should say. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's no longer the ruler of this world. He is cast out. Satan is done. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, referring to his crucifixion, his death, will draw all people to myself, will begin this growth of the kingdom of God, drawing all people to himself. And this really lines up with what we see in human society. People say, well, you know, Satan's bound in some sense, Nate. I mean, people are, I mean, just watch the news. 
All you're going to get is bad stuff, but that's not what we mean by, by bound. And the Bible shows us a picture of what it looks like when it's talking about Satan being bound. Think back to the Old Testament. Where was the gospel located? It was isolated to Israel. I mean, the whole Gentile nations are in darkness. There's no spread throughout the world. But what happens when Jesus Christ comes? He lives, he dies, he's resurrected, all those things. The gospel goes beyond Israel to impact the whole earth. Now, everybody knows Christianity. The Bible's the most read uh, book, the most purchased book, the most popular book in human history. Christianity is around 3 billion people, the largest world religion. So what accounts for that? What accounts for a little tiny segment of the world to massive expansion? What accounts for that? Well, Jesus tells us. Satan is bound. He will not deceive the nations like he did in the massive worldwide way he did in the Old Testament. And that's all thanks to the death and life of Jesus Christ, what he did for us. Now, here's something that's confusing. So if I'm reading these texts and it says that, uh, that Satan was defeated by the life and death of Jesus during his ministry, talks about, of course, Satan being soon crushed under the Romans' feet, under the Church of Rome's feet. There's an obvious question. So, like, when's Satan defeated? Like, is he already defeated? Like, isn't he going to be defeated when Jesus comes back too? Like, it's confusing. So, you're saying Jesus is defeated when Jesus... Uh, Jesus, no, wrong one. Satan, there we go. Satan is defeated when Jesus is around, okay? And then the Church of Rome has promised that they would crush Satan, and then in the future, we get many texts that say Satan will be defeated in the future. So you're like, which, which is it, Nate? And the answer is yes, all three. And I'm going to explain that. So yeah, Satan is, was defeated, received a death blow of sorts, is presently being defeated progressively, and will be finally totally defeated, incapacitated at the return of Jesus Christ. You know, just to give you, like, you know, an example that people you know, recognize, uh, a down-to-earth example of, of how, this, how it can be past, present, and future all at the same time. Take, for instance, World War II. When did the Allies defeat the Germans? Right? When, when did they do that? Well, many historians will say that at D-Day, June 6, 1944, that that is when the Allies won, pretty much. I mean, the, the Germans did not have much of a hope of winning. And so many people, will, historians will, will say, well, that's when we pretty much defeated them, is at D-Day. Now, you will, you will know there's plenty of fighting after D-Day. We know that. There's historically tons of fighting. And the Germans kept on fighting until the very end, even though they had no hope of winning. And, you know, Hitler eventually knew that. He, it was exposed to my generals that he was going to lose, and he didn't want to give up, so he eventually killed himself. Did not have a really good shot at winning. Hitler was, was in trouble after D-Day. And so, yeah, that's, that's how that kind of makes sense. He was defeated in some sense at D-Day. He was presently being defeated after, and then there's going to be this final guaranteed victory, pretty much. And I, I hate to use a combative example again. I'm using a lot of combat examples. Like, wow, we're learning a lot about combat today at church. But, you know, uh, in a boxing match, oftentimes the first, like, punch that a boxer gives that gets, gives a knockout It'll stun the guys. The guy's kind of not going to stun after the first punch. He doesn't necessarily go down. It takes a second and a third punch to kind of seal the deal, right? But that first punch, that was the punch that you, people can say, commentators can say, that is the punch that won him the match. 
See what I'm saying? So, but he still has to give a second and a third punch and a fourth punch to get that guy, you know, you know looking at the stars, you know, kind of thing. That's what it's going to take. And so, yeah, he's stunned at the first strike, but it takes a second and a third strike. And so that, that's how oftentimes, or oftentimes, that's how we want to view what Jesus did by his life and by his death with Satan is it's a progressive chance. Satan is mortally wounded now. He has no chance of winning. He has no hope of winning, but Satan is still around. Anybody who has eyes can see that. Satan is still trying to, uh, trying to screw up things, mess up things. He's bleeding out. He's a death blow, but he's still trying to cause trouble. He's trying to fight as much as he can, survive any chance he'll take. So we can't just slip into the mindset, oh, well, Satan's already defeated. Just, you know, let's stop. Let's stop worrying about Satan. No, we can't slip into that. That's, that's an extreme. We can't go there. We still have to be concerned about Satan and his demons. We don't want to have the attitude of like, oh, that's just, you know, we don't need to take that Satan stuff seriously. We don't take that demon stuff seriously. It doesn't even happen anymore. No, the Bible tells us just the opposite in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be aware. Be aware about this. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we talk about Satan being bound and defeated. It doesn't mean he doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't mean that he's completely and utterly incapacitated. No, if you get close to those bars, he's going to drag you in like you see like a lion in a cage. Or I often think my parents took me to drag, I should blame it on my, my grandfather, really. God rest his soul, took me to Jurassic Park when I was like nine. I mean, I think I had PTSD from that, if you ever, <laughs> you know. And I, I always remember being just scared as a nine-year-old watching like the intro of Jurassic Park. I don't know if you guys remember it, right, where, you know, a guy gets close to the raptor cage, and I always remember Robert Muldoon, shooter, shooter, you know, the guy's like, ah, you know. Well, I mean, you don't want to get close to the raptor cage because you're going to be dragged in. So yeah, I mean, Satan's not in capacity. He's bound, he's limited in various ways. But don't get close to the raptor cage. Don't mess around over there. You're going to be dragged in. And so yeah, spiritual warfare is going on. But the difference is, and this is an encouragement, though the spiritual warfare is going on and it's a real thing, we know who's going to win the war. We know the battle belongs to the Lord. So we cannot have a lackadaisical attitude. That would be like the allies after D-Day saying, all right, let's just, let's just go back and go back to the States or whatever and just eat pie or something. No, I mean, if you, let, if you give your enemy a chance like that, they're going to take over, you know? No, it'd be like the boxer who like, you know, puts a stunning punch and says, all right, let me relax and take a nap. It's like, no, you got you to still do something. You know, there's still activity going on here. And so, yeah, Peter says, you got to be watchful. You got to be so reminded. You got to do something here, you know? So that's, that's why, you know, at the same time, we shouldn't give like, you know, uh, omni properties or like ascribe deity to Satan in some ways that people do, that everything is like, oh, I'm just being controlled by Satan constantly, or, you know, that every sin I commit is just because Satan's talking to me all the time and he's controlling me. No, sometimes you're just plain irrational, evil, and rebellious and short-sighted, and that's all that's going on there. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Not every sin is attributed to the, to the demonic or Satan. The Bible does not teach that. But yet, Satan and his demons do try to attack us from time to from time. That's what the Bible teaches. So how does Satan attack us today? What's the primary way he hurts our faith? 
we need to know how to be on guard. If you want to know, if you don't know how a person's going to even attack you, how are you ever going to be on guard? How are you ever going to be watchful if you have no idea how the enemy's going to come at you? But the Bible does tell us the primary way, and people are not aware of this, I think, the primary way in which the Bible tells us, there's many ways, I can, uh, I won't go through a list, but the, the main two maybe understated ways that Satan attacks us is through false doctrine, false teaching, and accusing our hearts that we are going to hell and that God does not love us. And we see this in Revelation 12, 9 through 10, and the great dragon who was thrown down, that ancient serpent, and that's why many people think the serpent in the garden is Satan because of this text, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He deceives, he lies. He was thrown down to the earth and the angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a, lo a, lo a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and power and kingdom are of our God and authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God accuses them day and night many people think of Satan as merely somebody who tells you to sin more and not to feel bad about it that's kind of you know the idea people have and Satan is only viewed as this person that tempts you to sin you know you have the angel on one shoulder you got the demon on the other and that's pretty much where people's idea of Satan goes however what, what is the primary function of Satan here and his demons that is not talked about is that he gets repentant believers who trust in Christ, he gets them focused on their sin, their shame, their guilt, and their moral wickedness that they've committed in the past, oftentimes. In this way, Satan, according to the Bible, is more like a church lady or a Pharisee who accuses you and makes you feel like, hey, I'm too unworthy to go to church because... You know, I, I'm, I've really messed up here. I, I'm, I'm too far gone. There's no way a, a messed up person like me go to church. I find it so ironic. The work of Satan in the life of repentant, grace-filled believers looks more like a judgmental, legalistic church person than it does a friend who's a moral train wreck. I find that so interesting. And the reason why I say that Satan's primary role with believers is to accuse them and make them feel unworthy to go to church, make them feel unworthy to read the Bible or to pray when they've fallen into sin and struggling with sin, it's Satan, that person who makes you feel dirty, shameful, and messy for all the sins you've committed. And by the way, the word devil, that word literally means a trans accuser, one who accuses you of your sin and your wickedness. That's the role that we see in the book of Zechariah. That's what Satan does. He accuses you. Satan puts this thing in your mind. Satan is demons. Yeah, there's no way God can forgive somebody like you. Look at, look at all the things you've done, all the horrible things you've done. Your whole life has been filled with terrible decisions. You think trusting in Jesus, you think that's going to forgive you for your sins? You think going to church and trusting in Jesus, you think that's, gonna, that's not going to cleanse you? you are, you've committed terrible things. You are far too gone for God to love you. So oh, God can't use somebody like you. You're too messed up. You're, you have ruined your life with, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You have just gone too far. And so you know what? God can never use somebody like you. So just give up. Don't, don't worry about that God thing. Do your own thing. It's no, you've already, you're already messed up so much. Just, just give in and just give up. Oh, look at you just sinned. Well, maybe... God doesn't love you. Maybe you're not a believer. 
That's, that's the kind of things we're talking about here. There's no way that God can love somebody who's messed up as much as you. And so Satan attacks us and accuses us when we are struggling with our sin. The, the role of Satan then is to convince us of the greatest liar. He's, he's the greatest liar. He's a great deceiver. The greatest lie in the human heart is that God no longer loves you. And the way for us as Christians to defeat this lie, this deceptive, satanic, evil lie, is by preaching the gospel of grace, hearing the gospel of grace, reading the gospel of grace over and over again. That, that's why it says in Colossians, when, when that sin was nailed to the cross, every single one of your sins were forgiven. Every single one of them. So when you preach that gospel news to yourself, that just destroys that just demolishes the accusations of Satan because any sin you've ever committed, no matter what it is, is forgiven in Christ. You cannot outsin the coverage of God's grace and love. And that truth destroys the lies of Satan. And it is by that gospel message that it will conquer the world. And that's how we individually and as a church will storm the gates of hell. We will trample Satan underfoot is by the preaching of God's grace that all of our sins are forgiven. That's what just demolishes the lies of the accuser. I love how the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, puts it. He says, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where He is, there shall I also be. That's what you do with those lies. And I love the way the classic hymn puts it that really shows how the gospel tramp, tramples and destroys the lies of Satan. It's, it says this, it says, What though the vile accuser roar, Satan. He's roaring and accusing of the sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. Forgiven and free. And that is a destructive bomb that destroys the lies of the accuser. God loves you in Christ forever and ever. If you trust in him this morning, let us pray.